My name is Kevin Bates, and I'm a pastor in Sherwood, Oregon. Each and every week, we desire to take theological principles, biblical stories, and narratives, and really all the genres of scripture, and help you immerse yourself in order to embody and apply them to your everyday life. I want to encourage you to tune into this online broadcast each and every week, and ways you can support what we do here is first follow our Instagram page, uh, at resonate and like our Facebook page, you can listen to this broadcast and make comments under any social media channel you're listening to. And also you can financially support our ministry through our website, resonatelife.org under the give tab off to the right. You are joining us live on Thursday night at 8.30 for this podcast. And we will be replaying this on Sunday morning as a part of our Sunday morning broadcast as well. So every Thursday night, we go live coming together to give a better understanding of the material that we'll be covering and also covering on Sunday morning. So call this a deeper dive. So we are starting a new series today called Atlas of the Heart, based on Brene Brown's book, Atlas of the Heart. I'm using this as a structure for our series, and our series is really called a biblical understanding or perspective, biblical perspective of emotions. So Atlas of the Heart, a biblical perspective of emotions. So I am joined today with Sherea Bonner and Jake Fluke, two of my leaders at Resonate. Good evening, Jake and Sherea tonight. Good evening, Kevin. Good evening. Awesome. Good evening. Well, it is a special night because it's Thursday and there is a nice little word that we describe this Thursday before Easter. It's the fifth day of Holy Week, and the fifth day of Holy Week is Easter week, and it's called Maundy Thursday. Maundy Thursday means mandate or command Thursday, and command Thursday, the commandment that Jesus gave is to love God and to love others as yourself. So that is the greatest command, part of the Shema that's the Lord God is one. We are to love the Lord God with all of our heart, mind, and soul and love others as we do ourselves. Jesus was asked by the Pharisees, what is the greatest command? And he gave those two versions and, and tied it together. So this is Monday, Thursday, and we celebrate Monday, Thursday um, as the Passover evening. And so this is Passover evening where Jesus sat around a table with his disciples. And also what's interesting is the disciples were not the only people there. Uh, there were women, there were children, the house was full. It wouldn't have just been the 12 dudes sitting at a long table, like Leonardo da Vinci sitting, sitting for 24. <laughs> there would have been a U-shaped table, really kind of a U-shaped styled table that was more in the round and people would have reclined. It was called the reclining table. So we'll just use that word for now. A reclining table. Uh, there's a fancy word for it. And they used to sit and recline and rest and eat. 
they shared in the last supper, which we just went through the book of Exodus. So you should all be versed on what the last supper is and the reasons why and the whole business. And so Jesus would have celebrated that last supper in the same fashion as they did for a very long time and still do today. So in our Seder meals and such. So we have uh, we have this Monday, Thursday to remember the Last Supper. Jake, do you want to throw up that picture? This is a picture of more of a true Last Supper that I've always enjoyed. This is from uh, the St. Francisco Cathedral in Lima, Peru. Lima, Peru, a large city, metropolitan city, uh, and a very old cathedral. This is in the 1600s. This was painted uh, by Diego de la Puenta. And Diego painted this, commissioned for this monastery um, there in Lima. And you will see there's some interesting things about this painting that I've always enjoyed. Uh, I've actually seen this in person. I've also seen um, I've also seen a different version of this in Cusco, Peru. Uh, right at the base of basically Machu Picchu. And so there's two versions of, of this. But this one here is uh, the larger version. It's just a huge painting in this cathedral. You'll notice that the disciples are around the table, more in a community fashion. This is kind of a close-up picture because some of it is cut off. Um, you'll see right on the very right of the picture, there is a woman in red, kind of a sash around her waist there on the very far right. There's actually three other women standing right next to her in the larger version. This is the best picture that I could find that was not uh, just a picture of the hall with the painting at the end of the hall. So this is the close-up that I could find for us to show. And then uh, you'll see the children probably looking for the Afe Komen. Uh, but this, these are the children uh, that are maybe serving some food or eating themselves or just playing around the table. What I really enjoy about this, of course, is we see God and the angels, the Holy Spirit, basically up top, illuminating the table. And then these onlookers uh, that are in the back, uh, kind of behind that altar on the right which those are kind of special little onlookers. But what's really interesting is there are people looking in the windows. So if you'll notice that there's people behind Jesus to the right and to the left, and they're peering through the windows, looking at what is happening uh, during the Last Supper. So uh, something that's different about this that is different than, let's say, Leonardo da Vinci's Last Supper that's in the Vatican you'll see right at the center, very hard to see, but notice that there's not a lamb shank or a lamb type uh, meal in the middle of the table. That is a guinea pig in the middle of the table. And guinea pigs are sacred animals in South America, especially in Peru. And so this would be their sacred meal. Uh, I do know that in uh, Indonesia, in different parts of Indonesia, and also in um uh, some different tribal areas in Papua New Guinea. They do, uh, they have chicken in the center of their, of their table. 
uh, they there's different sacred animals for different places. And so just know that the lamb represents a sacred sacrifice, a sacred meal, a sacred idea. So uh, it really doesn't matter what's at the middle of the table. It could be the chicken of God. It could be the guinea pig of God, or it could be the lamb of God that came to save the world. And that's Jesus. So Jesus, our chicken of God, Jesus, our guinea pig of God, hallelujah, we celebrate Maundy Thursday with that thought. That's just an opening thought on uh, Maundy Thursday. I like it. <laughs> Thank you. All right. We're going to read some scripture tonight. So we have a Matthew passage that Jake's going to lead out for us. And this is the crucifixion and the resurrection scene. And so we're just going to walk through this all at once, and then we'll get into our material. Matthew 27, early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders and the people reached the decision to have Jesus put to death. They bound him, led him away, and turned him over to Pilate, the governor. When Judas, who had betrayed Jesus, saw that Jesus was condemned to die, he felt deep regret. He returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders and said, I did wrong because I betrayed an innocent man. But they said, what is that to us? That's your problem. Judas, Judas threw the silver pieces into the temple and left. Then he went and hung himself. The chief priests picked up the silver pieces and said, according to the law, it is not right to put this money into the treasury since it was used to pay for someone's life. It's unclean. So they decided to use it to buy the potter's field where strangers could be buried. That's why the field is called the field of blood to this very day. This fulfilled the words of Jeremiah the prophet. And I took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of one whose price had been set by the, some of the Israelites. And I gave them for the potter's field as the Lord commanded me. Jesus was brought before the governor. The governor said, that's what you say. But he didn't answer when the chief priests and elders accused him. When Pilate said, do you hear the testimony they bring against you? But he didn't answer, not even a single word. So the governor was greatly amazed. It was customary during the festival for the governor to release to the crowd one prisoner, whomever they might choose. At that time was a well-known prisoner named Jesus Barabbas. Barabbas, Barabbas sorry. When the crowd had come together, Pilate asked them, whom would you like to release to you? Jesus Barabbas? or Jesus, who is called Christ. He knew the leaders of the people had handed him over because of jealousy. While he was serving as judge, his wife sent him a message and said, leave that righteous man alone. I've suffered much today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas to kin and kill Jesus. The governor said, which of the two do you want me to release to you? Barabbas, they replied. Pilate said, then what should I do with Jesus who is called Christ? And they all said, crucify him. But he said, why? What wrong has he done? And they shouted even louder, crucify him. Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere and that a riot was starting. So he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I'm innocent of this man's blood, he said. It's your problem. All the people replied, let his blood be on us and our children. Then he, he released Barabbas to them. He said, Jesus, he had Jesus whipped. 
then handed him over to be crucified. The governor's soldiers took Jesus into the governor's house, and they gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a red military coat on him. They twisted the crown of thorns and put it on his head. They put a stick in his hand. Then they bowed down in front of him and mocked him, saying, Hey, king of the Jews, after they spit on him, they took the stick and struck his head again and again. When they finished mocking him, they stripped him of the military coat and put his own clothes back on. They led him away to crucify him. As they were going out, they found Simon, a man from Cyrene. They forced him to carry the cross. When they came to the place called Golgotha, which means school place, they gave Jesus wine mixed with vinegar to drink. But after tasting it, he didn't want to drink it. After they crucified him, they divided up his clothes among them by drawing lots. They sat there guarding him. They placed above his head the charge against him. It read, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. They crucified him with two outlaws, one on his right side and one on his left. Those who were walking by insulted Jesus, shaking their head and saying, so you were going to destroy the temple and rebuild in three days, were you? Save yourself if you're God's son. Come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests, along with the legal experts, and the elders were making fun of him, saying, he saved others, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. So let him come down from the cross now. Then we'll believe him. He trusts in God. So let God deliver him now, if he wants to. He said, I'm God's son. The outlaws who were crucified with him insulted him in the same way. From noon until three in the afternoon, the whole earth was about was dark. At about three, Jesus cried out with a loud shout, Eloi, Eloi, lama shabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you left me? After hearing them, him, sorry, some standing there said, he's calling Elijah. One of them ran over, took a sponge full of vinegar and put it on a pole, offered Jesus to drink. But the rest of them said, let's see if Elijah will come and save him. Again, Jesus cried out a loud shout, and then he died. Look, the curtain of the sanctuary was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rock split, and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised. After Jesus' resurrection, they came out of their graves and went to the holy city, where they appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and what had just happened, they were filled with awe and said, this was certainly God's son. Many women were watching from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to serve him. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the Zebedee sons. That evening, a man named Joseph came. He was a rich man from Arimathea who had become a disciple of Jesus. He came to Pilate and asked for Jesus' bodies. Body, sorry. Pilate gave him permission to take it. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and laid it in his, in his own new tomb, which he had carved out of the rock after he rolled a large stone in front of the door of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting in front of the tomb. The next day, which was the day after the preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate. 
They said, sir, remember that while that the deceiver was still alive, he said, after three days, I will rise. Therefore, order the grave to be sealed until the third day. Otherwise, the disciples may come and steal the body and tell people he's been raised from the dead. The last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate replied, you have soldiers for guard duty. Go and make it secure as you know how. Then they went and secured the tomb by sealing the stone and posting a guard. After said Sabbath, at dawn, the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the tomb. Look, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven. Coming to the stone, he rolled it away and sat on it. Now his face was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so terrified of him that they shook with fear and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, don't be afraid. I know that you're looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He isn't here because he had been raised from the dead. Just as he said, come, see the place where they laid him. Now hurry and tell the disciples he had been raised from the dead. He's going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there. I have given the message to you. With great fear and excitement, they hurried away from the tomb and ran to tell the disciples. But Jesus met them and greeted them. They came and grabbed his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said, Don't be afraid. Go and tell my brothers that I am going to Galilee. They will see me there. Now as the women were on their way, some of the guards came to the city and told the chief priests everything that they happened. They met the, the elders and decided to give a large sum of money to the soldiers. They said to them, Say that Jesus' disciples came at night and stole his bodies while you were sleeping. And if the governor hears about this, we will take care of it with him, so you will have nothing to worry about. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were told to do. And this report was spread throughout Judea to this very day. Now even the disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him. Some doubted. Jesus came near and spoke to them. I have received all authority in heaven and earth. Therefore, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded. Look, I myself will be with you every day until the end of this present age. That was a long passage, Jake. Good job. Good job, Jake. Thanks. It wasn't <laughs> Hebrews. So we're better. <laughs> Read the whole death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Um, I don't think... I don't think I've heard the whole death, burial, and resurrection of Christ on Monday, Thursday before. It'd be an interesting practice to uh, to do on Holy Week, is to practice reading the Gospels that way. Mm-hmm. Well, I would say that the emotion that I would embody is shame. When I think about that scripture, I think about the emotion of shame. And there's definitely places that I go when I feel shame. I try to run away and hide and all those good places. But uh, obviously Jesus didn't. But I wonder, <clears throat> I wonder what Jesus felt during that time. Did Jesus feel shame? He stumped the crowd. 
I know. I always have one ringer in here. I I have a hard time saying that you just felt shame. I see sorrow mostly mm. in Man of Sorrow. I feel like the purpose that they were trying to do and the whole time was shame Jesus out of his ministry out of life, even out of like the end of the end of being really. Um, But I think that possibly the crucifixion, if it, if it can be a, a model is actually a good model of not taking up other people's shame and staying to the end. It is a lot of sorrow and a lot of pain. Yeah. What do you think, Sharia? Um, I wonder if there's a difference between humiliation and shame. Because hmm. um, em- embarrassment doesn't sound like a s- strong enough word, you know. Um, but shame implies that Jesus would have been in the wrong or been made to feel like he was in the wrong. And, and I agree with Jake that I don't think Jesus took that on. Um, but I do think, um, the actions of people trying to mock Jesus, um, in not taking the shame, Jesus kind of reflects it back. Mm -hmm. Um, because they don't come in out come out from that story looking very good. No, you have to lie about their performance. Right. Yeah. You know, I what do you I think, think Kevin? That, yeah, I have some thoughts on that. After all the studying that I've done on human emotions, and if I was true to my thesis of human emotions shame is human to feel shame is a human response is a human emotion so let's look up hebrews 12:2 and let's find out if jesus felt shame <laughs> We're going to look up the the Greek on that one. And fix our eyes on Jesus. Faith's pioneer, perfecter, he endured the cross, ignoring the shame for the sake of the joy that was laid out in front of him and sat down on the right side of God's throne. Okay, so ignoring is a horrible (laughs) translation of that. So let's open up the, the Greek on that one. I guess not horrible, but there it is. Cataphronia. Mm. The spies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's actually a, a, a compilation of two words, isn't it? Kata and then froneo. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what is kata? Like, to, again. Think da- to think down on or alone among a side it's a locative yeah. so it's 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 uh i don't have locatives a good greek word but um yeah okay and then 
for now. It's not there. Cut it by now. Give me. We're going to have to scroll through a lot of letters. I know. Yeah, it's okay. There to we exercise go. the mind. Yeah. To think against, basically. Mm-hmm. Right. So I think that Jesus felt shame because all scripture tells us is that Jesus was fully human. And so Jesus had the propensity to feel shame. Everything that he went through, they were mocking him and such. And so if Jesus didn't feel shame, then he wouldn't have necessarily been empathetic to us. Okay. So I think that Jesus felt shame. It's just, what did Jesus do with the shame? (laughs) Right. And I, I, everywhere that I read, Jesus despised the shame. Of course, the CEB would have, uh, you know, ignored the shame, which I guess that's not too bad of a translation because it has to do with the mind putting away. But I think that Mm -hmm. ignoring is like a disregard. I don't think he Mm -hmm. disregarded it. I think that he actually regarded it and did something with it. So he placed it in its proper position which was to despise it or to, to put it away. So I think that that is a, that is a pretty awesome like action or, or a reaction to an emotion mm-hmm. is to actually say, I feel this and I'm not going to do anything with it. I'm actually going to take on what you're saying to me and go to the cross with it. I mean, if my hermeneutic of emotions is correct, we're all human and Jesus was human. So therefore he experienced all humanness as well. Mm-hmm. It would be a natural response. I think I we, but yeah, I mean, I had a hard time saying that when I first read some stuff on, did Jesus experience shame? Because in hope there is no shame, right? Right. That's Romans yeah. five. So in hope, there is no shame. So Jesus goes to the tomb and resurrects. And that's where the hope comes from, not in the cross. I think that shame has been a very much a cultural trigger word lately as well. Yeah. And so it's, it's usually in the con, like the connotation of, misplaced i think we're going to talk about later misplaced right. emotions or a, or a even a, a an abuse of emotion and so i guess right. in that context yeah jesus could definitely feel the shame of of the cross the shame of what they had to go through shame of nudity public nudity especially as a jewish mm-hmm. rabbi jewish yeah. rabbi man Um, there's a lot of like cultural shame ideas in that yeah and so yeah because it is a but the it is a shame-based culture especially right i don't think we're going to talk about shame versus guilt-based cultures and family structures um we're a very guilt-based society Mm -hmm. where he would be in a very shame-based system 
So we're at the reason why I'm doing this series and I'm going to ask you the same question. Why are you doing this series, Jake? And why are you doing this series, Sharia? I think I'm doing this series for not really what just happened there, but what we say to people or do with people's emotions. So somebody feels shame or somebody feels guilt or somebody feels fear or anger or whatever emotion it is. The church is notorious for invalidating another person's reality. So somebody is experiencing something and we go, well, in Christ, there is no shame. Okay. What am I supposed to do with that? I feel shame. I feel fear. I feel angry. I feel lost or without or taken from. I mean, all kinds of emotions can come into play just in life in general on a daily basis. But in Christ, basically what the church has done is this. In Christ, do not feel. Yeah. Emotions are evil. Right. Yet people like Friedman and the failure of nerve in Friedman's 1972 book called The Failure of Nerve, he came up with the thesis that every decision that we make is based off of, the final decision is based off of an emotion. So we can think ourselves all the way to the final moment where we have to say yes or no. And at that point, it's our gut, it's our intuition, it's our you know, historical, um, historical, uh, uh, affections, you know, whatever it is Mm -hmm. at some point, our emotions take over to say yes or no. So I think Jesus in the garden and the crowd wanting to go to the cross, you know, he can think himself all the way to the cross, but then he gets to that garden. He's like, okay, God, (laughs) don't want to do this don't want to do this. And so maybe, I mean, could there have been fear? Well, fear comes from the devil, right? That's what, that's what the church has said. Fear comes from the devil. Only fear the Lord. Huh? Only fear the Lord. Only (laughs) the real fear is fear of the Lord. So, so we've definitely done people a disservice in our full humanness. When we experience emotion, we have this invalidation. So that's why I'm doing this series is I feel like that we can reclaim emotion and we can come up with a biblical perspective of emotion because emotions obviously are real, uh, not necessarily speaking the truth. And that's where we get misguided and misdirected. We're going to talk about that here in a little bit. Shreya, why are you doing this series? Yeah, kind of similar. Um, I think for a while, the church has kind of railed against self-help. Like you don't need self-help. You need God help. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And like, when we learn about ourselves and our emotions and how to communicate those intelligently and express them in healthy ways, um, I think we're able to love each other better. Um, Mm -hmm. and, And that's, what Jesus asked us to do. That's the Monday Thursday command. Right. It's great. Good. Jake, why are you doing this series? Um, well, all those are great responses and answers. And I think that I would add to it as well that 
in our last series, we talked a lot about deconstructing ideas and, and really giving a, a solid context and structure to, to our beliefs. So that it's not, it's not pie in the sky. It's not, it's, it's based on evidence, but also based on story and narrative and how the, the story has greater point than the yeah. historical facts of it. And I think in this, in this topic, another, another big idea that we're tackling is another catchphrase. I wouldn't call it a fad because it, I think it's greater than a fad is that uh, the amount of spiritual abuse that, that people have suffered, endured, and have gone through. And a lot of it is, is church leaders and Christians and friends who are Christian place faith above emotion where I would say your faith has to do with emotion as well. And so as we create a, a bigger language around emotions, then we're able to, to more accurately and, and hopefully helpfully um, heal relationships and people and dig into um, returning to the created order of things. And so uh, in this book, Atlas of the Heart, I think it's 87 different emotions that, mm -hmm. that they She's have surveyed yeah. and identified. Mm -hmm. And the average person can name three within themselves. Yeah. So, the average person can name three emotions when they're happening. So identify when I'm happy, when I'm sad, and when I'm mad. Happy, sad, mad. And yep. so by not being able to correctly identify the emotions within you, you're not living the whole human existence. Mm -hmm. And Jesus came to, to allow us to live as whole humans, not as like the platonic dualistic system of my body is outside of my mind, outside of my spirit, right. outside of my emotions. Or, plutonic dualism a dualism of thinking yeah, and feeling so, yeah the separation of body mind spirit mm -hmm. and so that 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 coming together is the beauty of this series and maya angelo has a beautiful little quote for shirea's uh reason for wanting to do this series is Basically, people will not care what you do yeah. or what you say or what you think. People will only care how you made them feel. Mm -hmm. And that goes to the Monday Thursday command of loving people. Well, some things don't feel good, but yet we can help people to feel better and to feel affirmed and to feel the right feelings in the right moments. We can help navigate that and partner with people in their feelings to help them feel like they're human. I think we've done a really disservice as Sharia said, you know, we've biblicized people out of 
therapy. We've biblicized people out of real help. Um, I guess that I would say that that's almost anaphthema when we look at somebody and deny and invalidate their emotions to the point that we don't recognize depression that is real or that we claim depression is real and we just claim it's a spiritual attack. A, I think that a that's faith, a, a faith issue, not a right. chemical or a situational right. issue. Anxiety, uh, depression, panic attack, disorders, all the way to disorders, we claim the Christian world has claimed in the past that those are just demon possession, oppression, or faith issues in our life. And it's gone as so far to say, if you have more faith and your depression will go away, or if you have more faith, it, well, you know, I can attest that I've had a lot of faith in my life and some of my depressions have not gone away. So uh, what do we do with that? And how do we navigate that better for people? I've had, I've had, I've heard, excuse me, and I've been in churches and services where pastors and written in books just come off your medication and have more oh. faith in God. Famous pastors, famous, famous pastors have said that to the point that some of my friends who read their stuff and listened to their stuff came off of their medications and almost killed themselves. Yeah. And it's just like immediately, because like when you're on certain um, antidepressants, you just can't come off of those cold turkey. And so, yeah. so it's a very uh, sensitive process that you go through with those things going on them and coming off of them. So I think the church has done a very disservice to the world. Uh, but also as Jake pointed out in some of our prelim work, the generations that are below us now, I'm almost, I'm 49 Sharia, uh, 30, what? Four. 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 Okay. And Jake is 33, three. three or four, three. Okay. So you're in your thirties. I'm in my late forties. So we're, we're old, <laughs> we're old people. <laughs> so <laughs> we're just generated people just think that we're old, old farts. Um, so generations below us, are you millennials? We are both yep. millennials. Yep. Both millennials. You're that generation. We so are. now we have, yeah, <laughs> we have, <laughs> we have the, you, you millennials, you, and then we have Gen Z underneath or Gen Y, Gen Y, Gen Z in there somewhere. Generation Z is claiming some things about emotion and about spirituality that I think is important that we're going to unpack in this series and, and we'll go over that later, but there's generations below us that find emotion and the discussion of emotion. Very, very important. Well, let's get into it. Let's get into our about 15 minutes of discussion of modeling, um, <laughs> human emotion in, why are you laughing? Cause our introduction was 45 minutes long. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's how these nights get. Yeah, totally. So in the creation account, Genesis one through three, we're starting in the beginning. Mm -hmm. We see that there are emotions in the beginning. Tell me a little bit about Genesis one through three, Sharia. Give me the outline of what is Genesis one through three, just to get that out of the way to make sure that people have an understanding of where we're coming from. 
Yeah. Um, Genesis one through three um, gives us the creation story. Um, it's in there two times set in two different ways. Um, so we have the creation of everything that exists, um, the land, the water, the trees, the birds, the fish, the animals, people. Um, God created Adam, God created Eve in God's image. Um, and then Genesis three is, um, what we typically call the fall. Um, Eve ate the fruit, gave some to Adam. Uh, God asked what happened. Eve said, it's the snake's fault. Um, or no, Adam said, it's Eve's fault. Eve said, it's the snake's fault. Kicked yeah. out of the garden. And Genesis one through three is a poem. Yes. Yep. Tell me about that, Shreya, really quick. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't written down in an attempt to be a, a literal, accurate history. Um, it's a poem remembering um, maybe some oral history or traditions and ideas that had been passed down. Um, but in a lot of ways, contrasting um, Israel's God with the gods of Babylon. Yes. And you have, you actually have two different creation narratives. Mm -hmm. You have Genesis 1 and you have Genesis 2. And so yeah. you have two different, two different stories mishmashed together as we talk through the Exodus. There's two different or traditions. even multiple different yeah. traditions going into it. Right. One's called the creation order. And then one is called the creation parade. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've heard that before. One is a parade said backwards and one is kind yeah. of the, yeah, but anyway. Okay. So, uh, but they're two different traditions coming probably from two different tribes. Correct. Yeah. yeah. Well, we have a motion before the fall and that's really an important thing to, to identify. So Adam looks at Eve in this garden poetic version and says what you know wow bone of my bone flesh of my flesh so maybe there's a surprise maybe there's a delight right well, let's take it back one step i think i just oh. thought about something go ahead god said it is not good for man to be alone mm -hmm. so maybe he identified loneliness loneliness depression mm-hmm I mean, just right before that, though, too, is with all of the created things, God said that it was beautiful, mm -hmm. said it was good. Um, he believed in goodness or beauty. So that I believed he, he had a movement towards beauty, a movement towards good. So was that emotion to declare something, to make a declarative of good or beautiful? I would say so. Yeah, totally. Uh, mm -hmm. Okay. Any other emotions? I think satisfaction could be what you just described. Yeah. Okay. I made this write thing that down. good. Yeah. Right. Uh, Sheree, I think you mentioned something about they looked at the fruit. Oh, I didn't, but that is that is in there. The the fruit was pleasing to the eye. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They desired it. Envy, maybe. So there was desire. Huh? Envy, perhaps. Maybe. Yeah. 
So they saw the forbidden fruit and they desired it. They wanted it. Then the fall happens. They wanted and, to be like God. Yes, they wanted so, to be like God. That's the important idea behind the fall, right? There's some comparison they, there. Right. So in this uh, effect of sin, then we see there is a distortion or there's some kind of what I'll call misinterpretation or misguided direction of emotion. And it's in those distortions or misguided or misdirected emotions. That is where our imperfections voids, not hitting the mark, falling short, call it whatever, call it sin. That is where our imperfections come into play. I don't mean that are just our imperfections that are uh, just because we're human beings. We're not perfect, right? We're to love ourselves and we are enough. The imperfections, meaning the misguided or misinterpretation of emotion. So for example, in this, in the fall, then women are subdued, like they're put underneath, right? And so that oppression, that power pride becomes a part of culture, becomes a part of the, the post, I guess, um, the predisposition of, or the post-disposition, whatever you want to call it, to, to sin. We're not, I guess, it wouldn't be predisposed, it would be post-disposed. But I guess we are predisposed to pride. We're predisposed to... Go ahead, Jake, you had something to say there? Um, no, I just think that's, that's great that the, oh. the hierarchy structures were not a... And especially as we look into the, the male-female relationship, is not a a pre-fall, if you want to use yeah. that as a category. It's not a pre-fall condition. And right. Right. Oftentimes we get hooked up into, into uh, translations or even uh, cultural translations of Genesis to say that that the yes. woman was there to help the man right mm-hmm. help a help mate is oftentimes described but more thing, of a, right. a co-labor yeah that's all i was okay yeah cool thank you for pointing that out because it's true that that is post missing the mm-hmm. mark everything after this depiction of when sin enters into life life becomes tainted life becomes marred, life becomes misguided and misinterpreted, our emotions become misguided and interpreted. But since we're created in the image of God and post-fall, we retain that image of God. If we have pre-fall, we have desire, we have maybe the, the, the lust of pride, we have, we have envy, we have joy, we have delight, we have all these things, right? that we are pre-fall, post-fall, we have those emotions still. It's just they're marred, they're tainted, they're misguided, and they're misinterpreted. 
So I'm coming up with a thesis about emotion where it is not the emotion itself that is the problem. It's what we do with the emotion that's the problem. So if I misinterpret, so Sharia, you know, might look, sound, act angry. And then I misinterpret that and say, Sheree is angry at me. Right. Yeah. When in <laughs> fact, she's just angry at Life. her job you know, or she's angry at Paisley or she's angry at what her dog <laughs> Paisley or whatever. Right. So, so it's my misinterpretation of emotion that then creates an imperfection that we have to sort through. Mm-hmm. If I am, if I don't eat correctly, if I don't get enough sleep, if I eat the wrong foods and makes me sick uh, and I get angry and I take that out on Jake where you know he does something that's benign or innocent or just, I don't <laughs> like, right. And I just, scream and yell because I ate something horrible and I don't feel good and I can't think properly. That is a misguided emotion. So when I take my emotions out, that creates an imperfection between. So it's not necessarily anger that is, because there is a place for anger. Jesus shows us that Mm -hmm. when he's flipping tables. I don't know what else does emotion to describe Jesus flipping tables. Some people say, well, that's righteous anger. And, and we, we can't be angry. We can only be righteously angry. Well, what's, I don't even know the difference there, but that just made up jargon to once again, invalidate emotion. (laughs) But What do you guys think of all that? I've just popped off there. I have a question out here and I haven't quite brought it my brain yet um when i see that when we spiritualize emotion okay we give those emotions only to those that are in power and so like righteous Mm -hmm. anger yeah is yes is a is a very like power play of Mm. of, it's a privileged emotion yeah it's a very privileged emotion or yes um yeah, but something to also bring up is as we look at as we look at the, the context of pre-fall and, and post-fall. And just if we stick to that, very little construct of it. If if you actually believe in in the the garden scene, uh, there was death in the garden. If so, there was death in the garden. There was death in the garden. Yes. And no matter what, there would have been sorrow with that death, or that would have been pain, or that would have been change. And and the the systems that in your brain that that make that up may do better with it, mm-hmm. but you would have still have felt the entire breadth of I think emotion. Oh, yeah. Hey, let's go back down to South America and Gustavo Gutierrez. So the priest Gustavo Gutierrez, famous liberation theologian. When I was in with my family, with Nataya and Amanda, with Amanda and Nataya down in Peru, 
we would get into taxis. And when we rode in a taxi, there wasn't a crucifix that hung necessarily from the, the mirror. So in, in foreign countries, a lot of times you'll get into taxis, especially in Catholic dominated countries, uh, there'll be a crucifix, like especially in Europe and stuff, there'll be a crucifix hanging from the taxi. Mm-hmm. But in Central and South America, there are these placards showing Jesus whipped so the stripes on his back. So the people identify with suffering, right? Persecution, suffering, right. domineering. Right. So they suffer from, we have a privileged class and a underprivileged class, and they identify with this privileged class oppressing the underprivileged class. And so at a certain point in liberation theology, you begin to rise, rise up and rise against the privileged class, sometimes turning. Now, some liberation theologians believe in, in uh, the violence perpetuation, the, yeah. Yeah, the, violence, uh, the violence conclusion, that it's going to take violence in order to overthrow the, the privilege. Yeah. Right. Yet I without going all the way there, because I don't believe that violence is the answer. Um, and we need to do everything that we can at the table before we just pull out our swords and start chopping each other's heads off. So, so in liberation theology, there's a certain frustration. Just mm-hmm. at the core of theology, there's a frustration. So yep. that would be righteous frustration. <laughs> that was a long, long story to just say that one little thing. But there, there's a right there. That would be if you are identifying with Jesus's suffering and you are experiencing oppression from a privileged upper to an underprivileged lower, then that is a righteous frustration. Of course. Which can turn into righteous anger. I mean, why, why are we giving ethic to emotion? Well, because it just sounded good at the moment, I guess. Because <laughs> <laughs> we always say righteous anger for Jesus. I'm just saying that that's where a under, you said that, that righteous anger is for a privileged class. Gotcha. I understand that. Right? Yeah. So I was trying to say, well, righteous frustration is seen at a underprivileged class. Yeah. I think my, my comment was more by saying my anger is righteous. That gives me a right yeah. to inflict yeah. upon you. Yeah. Misguided emotion. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think and going back to with all, since we, you talked about, liberation theology and the suffering the suffering yeah. on the uh the danglies and the windows the suffering servant not the not the either yeah. uh, empty cross mm-hmm. or full cross i think that's by our our view of the cross and the suffering kind of says a lot about yeah. our, our theology we can go into that later sure um and a reason to to also look and study into and get a biblical understanding around emotions is that emotions are, are mirrors 
that we can see ourselves and others. Yeah. And I think going beyond that, we haven't really hit this yet. I don't know if we're going to or not, but that God also has emotions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And God has a lot of big, big feelings all the way through um, Yahweh God all the way through the Old Testament and Jesus all the way through the, the New Testament. Well, yep. just the nature of God, what we would classify as natures of God. God is love. God is compassionate. God is slow to anger. Those are all emotions. Emotive words. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or have emotions that kind of hover mm-hmm. around them. I would say, though, that in modeling healthy emotions, there's a lot of work that Christians need to do because we haven't spent enough time. Um, you know, who were they, Jake? You, you studied the, the people who would stove themselves up in the walls yeah. of churches and stylites and uh, up on top of little towers. Colors, and, yeah. And uh, mm-hmm. what anchorites, what, anchorites, anchorites, and stylites, right? Are those the two? There well, were others. Let's call them aesthetics. Aesthetics. Aesthetics, yeah. Uh, so they would scream. Some of them would scream. So uh, we're, we're, we're kind of jumping ahead. So a. Okay, sorry. Uh, yeah, say, yeah. Explain who, who we're talking about here. Um, in especially medieval times, you had yeah. monks. Well, it's, I mean, you can go back even further than medieval times, but where you get the most writing of them is in um, medieval times where anchorites, the anchor, uh, they would have a cross-shaped window in a little room that yeah. would only have view of the of the altar and then there was a little outside round hole where they would pass defecate through and they would get food in and so their entire life was dedicated to praying uh for that altar is the is the anchorite the stylite was a monk and who's the famous anchorite I, yeah. Um, Julia, Julia Norwich. Julia Norwich. Yeah. Um, and they so, would write too. They would write. Oh yeah. They would write. They would, but most of their writings yeah. were even centered around, around the altar. The, uh, yeah. yeah. Julia right. Norwich is a prolific writer actually. And she died when she was 23. You would die when you were 23 being <laughs> stoved up in the wall of a church. Yes. Anyways, <laughs> uh, it's but funny, it's, but ascetics so we'll just call them ascetics or ascetics they were deniers of of those emotions they were deniers but then there were others that would express large amounts of emotions were they the ones up on the tower i think so yeah they're there they were the, the stylites okay so the stylites were the ones that they would they would uh, build a tower and then they would stand rain or shine snow winter sun night and day 
they would be up on this tower, up on a platform and stand there praying, screaming, uh, yelling out to God, uh, crying uh, for the people. And then they would shimmy up their food and shimmy down their poop. So, I, I use defecate in mine. Yeah, the, okay, poop, right? So I, I just, I think about what the church used to do with emotions and how the church acknowledged emotion, even in the denying of emotion is the acknowledgement of the emotion. Yeah, I mean, and if you want so, to look at like the Desert Fathers that would go out and mothers, as you say, that would go out and they would do battle with the devil. Right, mm-hmm. um, right they would go into the desert by a lonely place and they would, they would do battle, I think with their own mental demons. Right. So we're not saying that you need to stove yourself up in the walls of resonate and pray for the stage. You can, you can, (laughs) can. and we got a little room over there off to the (laughs) side that, that music room off to the side, you could stove yourself up in there and pray for the, pray for the altar. Um, it might be noisy some nights. I don't know, but <laughs> or some days. Yoga happens. There's Yoga happens. There's yeah, a problem there this Saturday. Yeah, yeah totally. So, so it might Great get pretty problem. noisy for your, Yeah. Um, and you don't have to put yourself up on a tower of a building, uh, and scream and yell. It, it's it's just what is our model now for emotions? What is it going to be? Because we can't get into the Sharia complaint of we're just going to biblicize away our emotions and say, you don't need therapy. Um, but we have to come up with a modeling. I think Jesus. So if I just went through these really quick, Jesus experienced joy in John 15. Jesus had joy throughout the gospels compassion. Well, you just think about the compassion that he had of just mm-hmm. the conversations that he had the 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 prostitute that was probably naked that he shielded himself in front of because he probably was covering her nakedness because she was taken out of a building and what could she have been doing in that building right and so he that everyone wonders what he was drawing in the sand my theory of what he was drawing in the sand was creating a distraction from the leaders looking at this prostitute issuing her shame. That's, that's my theory of that, that he was probably just distracting them saying, don't look at her, look at what I'm doing. And everyone's like, Oh, what's Jesus doing down here as he's like literally covering her shame. So he had compassion. He had anger in Mark 11, sadness in John 11, fear in Matthew 26. And if Jesus is willing to have fear and anger, I'm willing to say that Jesus had shame. Jesus wept. Wept. Yeah. Jesus. A uh, mixture of confliction would have been that garden scene at Gethsemane. Oh, like he, he, uh, he sweated blood. He was under so much turmoil, emotional turmoil. Right. Right. What are some others? I have some notes in front of me. Um, sorrow, fear, joy. I mean, but he I, didn't engage in the misguided 
version of those. And that's what, that's what I think we need to capture. The misinterpretation and misguidedness of emotions. He didn't engage in that. I think one of the best stories for that is actually Jesus at Lazarus's tomb, where um, the Jewish Israelite people uh, would actually hire mourners to cry at funerals and tombs. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I'm not quite sure why, uh, but they were just professional mourners. Yeah. And Jesus rebukes the professional mourners and he actually mm-hmm. cries and weeps for his friend that died. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Shortest verse in the Bible. It everyone Jesus wept. Jesus yeah. wept. But it's a God or a a a Messiah figure that wept showed the full breadth of humanity. Mm-hmm. Something that is in front of me right now that Christ did not engage. In emotional denial, repression, or projection. Hmm. So projecting emotions that would have been missed. That would be misguided. Uh, yeah. But also emotional denial and repression. He wouldn't have participated in either. Mm-hmm. Hmm. I have a, a clarifying question. Sure. Uh, is it the experience of the emotion that can be misguided or is it the expression of that emotion or both? That's a good question. I think emotions are expressed like sadness can come out in tears, but also mm-hmm. sadness can come out in stoicism too. Mm-hmm. So just because you're stoic doesn't mean that you're not sad. Yeah. Um, so crying is the outside expression or blank face is the expression of stoicism. I think if you never cried, there's something up maybe mm-hmm. that you could explore a little more. Um, just like if you always cried, <laughs> there needs to be you know, something explored there as well. But we think the crier is negative. We actually think that controlling our expression of emotion is positive in our culture. Now there is safe places to do that. I don't think taking your emotions to Facebook is a safe place. Some people do. It's actually the, that is a cry for help. Yeah. Yeah. No, my, my question was a little bit different. It can be a cry for help. I think. Yeah. Go ahead, like, Trey. Or that's a big red flag that you need help. <laughs> yeah. Say it that way. We have emotions. They exist in our experience, right? Yes. Um, is it the having of those emotions that can be dis- misguided? Or is it the expression that's misguided? Like... It's the, it's the expression. The problem... Yeah, okay. It is the expression of the emotion. Because having emotions is just your natural response to what you think and believe is happening. Yes. I think mm-hmm. our the Kevin's Kevin's yeah. thesis is the expression of okay. that emotion. The I'm 
I'm angry, so I'm going to hit somebody. Right, 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 right. Or I'm angry, or I'm going to figure out with my, well, why I'm angry, or I'll scream right. in my pillow until I pass out. That's, <laughs> those are healthier ways than, than like the violent response. And maybe we, maybe we can come up with that the, the misplaced response is a form of, I think, violence in different ways. And so it could be emotional violence. It could be, yeah. it could be physical violence. It could be violence to self, violence to others, violence to the environment. I, I'm, I'm with Friedman and what Kevin said earlier is that every, every decision, every action is, is an emotional one. Mm-hmm. Leaders lead by emotion. Mm-hmm. I think the best leaders lead by emotion and the very worst leaders lead by emotion. And, yeah. and worst, I'm not saying worst as in poor quality. Right but in, in ethic. So like, well, so say the extreme, right? Uh, Nelson Mandela led by a great love. Mm -hmm. And out of love came the end of apartheid. Um, I'm not a fan of using, using Hitler, but we'll just use Hitler. I'm sorry. Great emotion, dug in hard to emotion. <laughs> and it was an emotional decision that, and it's, 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 it was the emotional of the not wanting to experience shame by being on the outside. And so there was this, there's this great emotion that was, that was going into there. So the misplace is that act of violence. Yeah, he had a huge emotion and then misplaced that emotion. Yeah, huge emotion, yeah. big feelings. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, I think the Bible is kind of clear on what both of you are saying. That when the Bible says in Romans 12, it says rejoice with those who rejoice mm-hmm. and weep with those that weep. So I think a misinterpretation, misguided emotion would be a lack of compassion would be laugh with those that weep, weep with those that laugh. Like they're not, they're not marrying one another. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's some experiences there that I think live in harmony. He's saying live in harmony, unity in emotion with one another. So you just don't like mock somebody that is going through death and you don't issue violence on somebody that is experiencing oppressed oppression, like your example, Jake. Um, so you, you just don't do that just because you feel things. Right. Just cause you have big emotion doesn't give you the right to express that emotion into some kind of emotional violence. But as being the person that is your, 
as the person that walks alongside other person. Right. As a responder, it is also your job not to co-opt their emotions for yourself. Right. Through codependency or through transference or through Pure um, selfishness and emotion, self selfish, emotional selfishness is when your emotions are more important than anyone else's in the room. And things might be triggering for you. And so that is also mm-hmm. why counseling is a very positive thing. Mm-hmm. Now that might be true though. Your emotions might be yeah. more important than anyone else's in the room. Yet that can't be all the time. So, okay. Certainly not without the rest of the room's input. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So we can, if I just look at a modeling, we can experience emotions accurately and adaptively. Emotions, according to Friedman, can aid us, do aid us in decision-making. Emotions need to be consistent with our thoughts and actions. Now, this has taken a lot of therapy for me. (laughs) My emotions being consistent with my thoughts and actions. Every emotion that I experience, I tell my kids this all the time. My, our emotions are real, but not necessarily speaking the truth. So I feel bad, but that doesn't mean I am bad. Right. Right. But that's what the lies that we tell ourselves. So emotions can be consistent with our thoughts and our actions. Emotions can be complete, excuse me, complete and not fragmented. So we can have complete emotions. Emotions can be expressed fully. They don't have to be denied, repressed, projected, or even they don't have to be externalized. So you can be a person that doesn't like have, you know, snot nose booger crocodile tears coming out of your face. When you feel sad, you could be a quiet person. They don't have to be externalized. Uh, emotions can be expressed with pure motive, pure motive, uh, staying away from manipulation and destruction of other people. All right. That's kind of a modeling of emotion. Okay, so let's, we got about 11 more minutes uh, until our very late time. So let's go into those slides. We have 13 slides to show. And this is out of Brene Brown's book, uh, Atlas of the Heart. We encourage you to read that. Um, These are pictures that uh, are just connected to her statements of places we go when blank, and then she lists off all of these emotions. So, Kevin, do Jake, you put them up? Oh, do you have them? I do not. You don't? No. I'm I, sorry. It's fine. Let's see. I've never done this before. Can you help me? Yeah, the middle. So it should let me, share let me your screen. Open. Let me open them here first. I do have them. They're right here. Okay. Places we go when we feel uncertain or things are too much. We experience stress. We're overwhelmed. 
We're under anxiety, worry, avoidance, excitement, dread, fear, and we feel vulnerability. So these, this is just the human condition. All of these emotions are real, not necessarily negative, not necessarily positive. They just are what they are. Everyone experiences them. It's our misguided and misinterpretation of them that create the imperfections, the marring of them, the taintedness of them. Okay, number two, places we go when we compare. Well, we compare admiration, reverence, envy, jealousy, resentment, schadenfreude, and frudenfreude. Schadenfreude means that I am excited and get joy over your failure. Frudenfreude means that I get joy and excitement and satisfaction over your success. It's the opposite. So schadenfreude is I basically enjoy when you fall on your face, which is a sad emotion, but it's a real emotion. Everybody experiences it. It's, and probably where I experience that the most, I experience a lot of schadenfreude when I go, wow, somebody just like me, <laughs> I actually feel normal. Okay. Number three, <laughs> places we go when things go as unplanned, boredom, disappointment, expectations, regret, discouragement, resignation, and frustration. Number four. Places we go when it's beyond us. Awe and wonder, curiosity, interest, and surprise. I'm sorry. Places we go. Are you number five. Go ahead. There we go. Places we go when things aren't what they seem. Amusement, bitterness, nostalgia, cognitive dissonance, paradox, irony, and sarcasm. Six. Places we go when we're hurting. Now, these sound bad, but these are very healthy, I think. Anguish, hopelessness, despair, sadness, and grief. Does it take hopelessness to achieve hope? Sometimes. So. Sometimes, yeah. Grief Next. is a positive, can be positive, totally. Places we go with others. Compassion, pity, empathy, sympathy, boundaries comparative suffering eight places we go when we fall short shame self-compassion perfectionism guilt humiliation and embarrassment places we go when we search for connection belonging fitting fitting in connection disconnection insecurity invisibility and loneliness 10 those locks of love in paris Places we go when we are when the heart is open, we feel love, we feel lovelessness, heartbreak, trust, self-trust, betrayal, defensiveness, flooding is when multiple emotions come into play and convolutes our mind and our heart and we're just overwhelmed and hurt. Number 11, places we go when life is good, joy, happiness, calm, contentment, gratitude, foreboding joy, relief, and tranquility. And 12, places we go when we feel wronged, anger, contempt, 
disgust, dehumanization, hate, self-righteousness, and 13. Oh, go back to that one. Go back to 12. Some people say hate is wrong. Do you hate the devil? 13. (laughs) Places we go when we go to self-assess. Pride, hubris, humility, cultivating meaningful connection. I thought that was interesting. All right. That's Atlas of the Heart. We're very excited for each one of you to be with us during this series. And we went through a lot of material. I hope you spend some time with it uh, over the next week. And if you'd stop sharing the screen, there we go. I hope that you can spend some time during the week studying these scriptures, going back over them to come up with a biblical understanding of emotion with the atlas of the heart next week starts our actually this was our introduction next week starts our first of first uh, of the series and we look forward to seeing you all next week all right thanks you too and good night have a wonderful wonderful night take care good night everybody thank you <laughs>